All right, are we ready to get into the Word today? Yes. Come on, let's do it. We're in a series, as I said earlier in the service, this is story. And we started this series talking about our story. The reality is this, in case you missed that, let me give you the really short version. Everything that God has planned, He is planning for a people, not a person. God has a plan for a people. And that being said, you and I will never do everything God's called us to do. You'll never be everything God's called you to be. You'll never fulfill the purpose that God has for your life unless you're connected to the people of God. In the beginning, God said, let us make mankind in our image, male and female, let's make them. It's always about a people. At the end, Jesus is coming back for a glorious bride, the church, one church, amen? He's coming back for a people, and so we have something that God is doing. And if you read through the Bible and you've never been educated on Scripture, you just read it like a good novel, a word that would stand out to you and me, in the Old Testament especially, is the word tribe. Tribe. God was raising up a nation, a people, and groups of people within that nation. And you need to have a tribe. I need to have a tribe. I need to know that there are people that are going to go through the stuff of life with me. These are my people. These are the people that God's called me to. I feel that way about this church. There's people in my life that, that God is using. There's people in your life that God is using. It, it matters. It's strategic. It's significant. You wouldn't be where you are without them and vice versa. This is our story. Last week... Evangelist Ron Rhodes preached, this is my story, and he told some great stories, but the emphasis was not Ron Rhodes' story. The emphasis is for all of us to be able to say, I have a story. This is my story. This is what God has done in my life. The Bible tells us that we ought to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, 1 Peter. You have a story, and a lot of times... People listen to incredible stories or they, they read about incredible stories and, and we tend to disqualify our own. We even say things like, if I had a story like that, boy, could I preach. But the reality is we're not talking about stories of going from bad to good, from falling to getting up. We're talking about a person that receives Jesus moving from death to life. We're talking about resurrection. I, I know it's two weeks early, but can I just declare there's resurrection power in the church today? Man, I should have got a better amen for that. I, pretend that didn't happen. Can I just declare to the, you today, two weeks before Easter, there is resurrection power in the church. Amen. Come on. Amen. That's what we're singing about. That's what we're selling about. That's why we got up and got dressed and came this morning. Reality is, I don't care what your story is. You might have been raised in the church and never backslid. You might have been just little Mr. or Miss Goody Two-Shoes all of your life. And you think, man, I don't, have a, I don't have a story like that person that God, you know, delivered out of the throes of death and, and got them off of addiction. And Listen, you were resurrected yeah. in Jesus. Amen. You have a story. Amen. Today, I, I want to I go another step farther with this. I want you to see today that the story that is being told, though it is your personal testimony, and we thank God for it, and, and there is a collective work God is doing through all of us, I want you to know that the real story is His story. Yeah. In fact, it's always been His story. 
In the 16th century, the Renaissance astronomer Nicholas Copernicus challenged an established belief that the sun orbited around the earth. He turned science on its ear when he held to this conviction that it was in fact the sun that was the center of the universe and the earth orbited around it. He literally turned scientific world upside down by turning the universe inside out. And I tell you that because I feel like some of us need to have our own Copernicus revolution. We need to get a fresh revelation that the world, my world, your world, does not revolve around us. That we are not the center of the universe. You're never going to find and fulfill the purpose of your life by asking a question like, what do I want? Or what's going to fulfill me? Or what's going to satisfy me? You're never going to get there. And yet, people spend their lives trying to grasp and cling to something that's going to bring significance and substance and pleasure to their lives. You need, to, you need to get a new perspective on the universe. And the Bible gives us that perspective in Colossians chapter 1. I, I just want to show you one verse in Colossians chapter 1. It's verse 16. And in this one verse, let me tell you what Paul is doing as he writes to this church. He's writing to a people that have believed the gospel. They, they experienced salvation, but they were influenced by Greek philosophy. And the philosophy of the day was, uh, was that, you know, new revelation, deeper thinking, uh, adding, adding more uh, insight is better. It's more spiritual even. And so the issue that they were having was the simplicity of the gospel. Just believing that Jesus is enough. And so the whole book, really, of Colossians is, is Paul putting Jesus at his rightful place again, at, at the supremacy of Christ. He's saying, Jesus is enough. And, and if there's an equation, I'll give it to you like this. Jesus plus nothing is enough. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. And, and so he writes these words. Look at verse 16, Colossians chapter 1. He says, for in him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he comes out of the gate right away saying, in him, all things were created. Now, the thing about that word all is it means all. All things were created, which means this. If Jesus created all things, he's uncreated. He's uncreated. He said all things came from him. And then in the second half of this verse, he does something that is pretty, pretty inventive, pretty insightful. Paul was a smart guy, and he understood that he's talking to people that have been swayed by Greek philosophy. And, and there was... There was something that the Greek philosopher always looked for in every situation. They needed three things. They needed a primary cause, they needed an instrumental cause, and they needed a final cause. So the primary cause was the plan. Like, what's the plan? The instrumental cause was the power. Like, how's this gonna, what's the instrument? How's this going to happen? What's going to make this go? And then the final cause is the purpose. So if we're going to understand something from a, a 
philosophical vantage point, the Greek philosopher needs to know what the plan, what the power, and what the purpose is for what we're talking about. And so Paul writes here this verse, verse 16, and he says, here's the deal about Jesus. Jesus is the primary cause. He planned it. It was all created in him. Here's the thing. Jesus is the instrumental cause. He produced it. He says all things were created in him, through him, and Jesus is the final cause. It's for him. So he did it for his own pleasure. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you need to know. Don't look any farther. This story is about Jesus. This is his story. The Bible says in John 1, 3, through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, when Nicholas Copernicus was on his deathbed, this great astronomer was given a copy of his book, The Revolution of the Heavenly Bodies. It was placed in his hands. It had just gone into print. This would be his legacy. But in that moment, he didn't begin to thumb through the pages of the book. He wasn't concerned at all with astronomy or his legacy or his finished work. In that moment, his thoughts were directed towards eternity. And instead of talking about or even looking at his book, he began to give instructions to those gathered around his bedside of what he wanted written on his epitaph after he was gone. Here's what he said. I want you to write this. I do not seek a kindness equal to that given to Paul, nor do I ask that grace that was granted to Peter, but that forgiveness which thou didst grant the robber, that earnestly I crave. And can I say every one of you can come to God on those same terms. When Nicholas was at the end of his life, what was consuming his mind was the end of Jesus' life. And that criminal that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus, who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in this moment, Jesus turns and he looks to this criminal who obviously is in no situation where he can do anything to earn God's favor. He cannot make up for all the mistakes and the bad choices. But Jesus looks at that man with some of his dying breaths, with the last ounce of his strength. And Jesus says, surely this day you will be with me in paradise. And Nicholas Copernicus is thinking about that moment. And he's remembering the grace of Jesus. And this is the, the greatest moment in history. And yet that moment is a snapshot of all of history. Because if you could define the story with one word, the word is grace. It's God giving his unmerited favor. One person said it like this. Grace is God's redemption at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's redemption at Christ's expense. If, the, if a person works a full week, eight hours a day, and they receive fair pay for the time that they serve, that's a wage. You earn that. If a person competes in the games and they win, they get a trophy for their performance. That's called a prize. And they earn that. 
When a person receives recognition after a long life of service and faithfulness and tenure on the job, they get an award and they've earned it. But when a person doesn't deserve the award, they haven't won the prize, they haven't worked enough for the wages, and yet you still give it to them anyway, that's grace. That's grace. It's been said that mercy is not getting what we deserve. There was a a woman who pleaded with Napoleon that he would not punish her son who had gone AWOL in his military. And she's pleading for her son's life and she says, mercy, have mercy. And Napoleon says to the mother, he doesn't deserve it. And she responds, that's why it's mercy. Like, no, he doesn't deserve it. I know that. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But can I tell you today, grace goes beyond mercy. If mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting the things you don't deserve. It's going above and beyond. Grace is not a trophy that we display. Look what I've got. In fact, the very opposite is true. We are the trophies that grace has earned. See, the Bible communicates this to us. It tells us in one of Paul's letters, he's writing to the church, that God's grace has been lavished upon us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Starting in verse 4, it says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. He said God was rich in mercy. And because he's rich in mercy, he has saved you. But grace has done more than that. Grace has done more than just pick you up out of the miry pit. He says you are now seated because of grace with Christ in heavenly places. Positionally, we are in a position that we don't deserve to be in. That is what grace has done. And I don't know if you're like me, but maybe you've wondered before why. Why would God do that for me? Why would God save me? Why would God give me a second chance? Well, the next verse tells us. Look at verse 7. Here's why he did it. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He said, here's the reason that God would lavish grace upon you. He did it so that God could display his infinite grace, his incomparable riches. He wants to display that in and through your life. In fact, he said he wants to show it so that he might show that. That word just means what it says. It means that he wants to expose it to the eyes like you would a trophy that's been earned. The reality is one day we're going we're gonna to be in heaven. And you're probably going to see somebody up there. And when you do, you're going to go, how'd they get there? 
I knew them. And verse 7 tells us exactly what's going to happen. Verse 7 says, God's going God's to point them out as a trophy of grace and say, they, here's how they got here. Because of the incomparable riches of God's grace demonstrated in their life. That's how they got here. They're a trophy of my grace. You know what else is going to happen about time that conversation goes down? About half a block up the streets of gold. Somebody's going to be looking at you going, no. <laughs> How'd they get there? You're a trophy of God's grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But you're going to get there because of grace. That's what grace does for us. Can I tell you this morning, you were never intended to be the main character in your story. You never were. Your life is not about you. It's his story. You know, when you look in the Old Testament, when you look in the Old Testament, we see the, the children of Israel and how God spoke to Abraham a promise and then raised up a nation and then used Moses and, and the, the tribes and then Joshua and the land. And, and we read the whole story. The tendency is to think that, well, this is God's special people and his plan is for them because of who they are. But I want you to look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 9 at just a few verses. We're getting our Bibles good and broke in this morning. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses begins to talk to the people about what God's going to do for them. In fact, look with me just at the first three verses there. It says, here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard what is said. Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly. Now, if you knew the Lord was gonna do that for you, what would you think? I mean, what kind of a, a motivation and a confidence in yourself would you have if God had just said he was gonna do that? And so the people hear this, and, and they had the same temptation that you and I have, to maybe become a little pride, prideful, a little arrogant. And so look at the next verse. Moses, Moses begins to kind of bring, bring them down uh, back to the earth a little bit. And he says, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Look at verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you. And here's another reason he says, to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, 
and to Jacob. Now, now let me make application here. Here's what God is saying to a people that he's leading. He's leading them by grace. He says, you need to understand. Here's the, the pastor Moses speaking to the, the people of Israel. He says, understand this. You're not going to possess the land because of your righteousness. What he's saying is you didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't earn this. This isn't what's coming to you. All right, you didn't earn this. And then he says, by the way, here's another reason you're going into the land and I'm giving it to you and you're going to annihilate that nation that's in there because those people have the judgment of God coming to them. See, the truth is, if we don't realize that the reality is God's working on this end of the story and the other end of the story, we can sometimes read the Old Testament and just think, wow, God is heartless. Like he's just sending his people in and they're just like murdering off these nations and like what's what's going on with that and God says listen you're not going to take this land because you're righteous or because you deserve it see the reality is God had given that other nation plenty of opportunities to turn from their sin plenty of opportunities to change their ways and the day of judgment was coming and God was saying look this is not your story this is my story, and you're my tool that I'm going to use to exercise my will in their life. So keep in mind that you didn't earn it, and I'm working from both ends of the story. He's working from both ends of your story today. And thirdly, the last thing he tells them is, I'm doing this to accomplish the promise that I gave to your fathers and to your forefathers. If I could just apply that to our lives, what he's saying in that moment is, hey, look, Israel, you're part of a bigger story. I mean, the things that I'm praying for today, for this church, for this community, I'm seeing the answer to prayers that were prayed a generation ago. I'm seeing the answer to prayers that were prayed long before I got here, long before you got here. And so what God is saying in his grace is keep in mind, you're a part of a bigger story. We're talking about generations and nations, multi-hues and multitudes, okay? We're talking about God doing a work that's bigger than your lifetime and farther than your reach. And he says, this is a work of grace that I am doing. But when you come to Jesus, you get to be a part of a better story. A better story is being written. This is a true story. There were two pastors that were heading down to Atlanta, Georgia to be at a men's ministry conference. And so they stayed in a hotel. They got up the next morning, went to a little diner to get some breakfast. And one of the pastors had never been in the South before. They sit down at the table and soon their food comes. And he, he sees this white mush on his plate. He's looking at it, looking at his friend. And so he waves the waitress down and he says, what is this? She says, oh, well, honey, that's grits. He says, grits? Well, let me tell you, I, I didn't ask for this. And I'm not paying for it. And she said, well, let me tell you, honey. Down here, you don't have to ask for it. You don't have to pay for it. You just get it. <laughs> and can I tell you that grace is like grits when you sit at God's table. Okay? You don't ask for it. You don't pay for it. You just get it. This is the love of God lavished upon us. When you come to his table, you get to be a part of a better story. 
There's blessing. There's benefits for everyone that comes into his story. And there's two things that I really want to impress upon you today about this story, his story, is that the grace of God, first of all, it cleanses us. Secondly, we need to know, and it should compel us. Turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The story here that we're picking up is the Last Supper. This is where Jesus teaches his disciples about communion. This is the last meal that he shares with them before they go to the garden to pray, before he's arrested, and within a few hours he's going to be crucified. He's there with his disciples in John chapter 13. And I want you to see verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Can we just stop right there? Jesus knew exactly who he was and he knew why he was here. Now, what this sets up is, is awesome, but I just want to slow down a minute, minute and let that settle in. Jesus had no question whatsoever about his identity or his authority. He knew who he was. He's the son of God. He knew what he was going to do, what his purpose was. He was going to fulfill the will of the father. He had come from God and now he's going to be returning back to God. All power and authority, disposable resources for Jesus. And yet, knowing that, I mean, that sounds like the setup for something awesome he's about to do because he knows that. But here's what it says in verse 4. So, in other words, because he understood who he was and what he was doing, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can I tell you what's happening in this moment? It is customary. This is not unusual. It was customary that when people came in for a meal after walking on the dusty Palestinian roads that were not all mud, some of it was uh, left there from livestock, you understand? People got some dirty feet. And so before they go to the table, the custom was that a servant, usually the lowest servant on the totem pole, would wash everyone's feet before dinner. But it was really something necessary if people are going to enjoy the meal. And so if there's not a servant, the custom was that one of the friends would do it. Someone there would pick up the, the basin and the towel, and they would wash everyone's feet. Nothing uncommon about what's happening here. What's exceptional in this story is who picked up the basin and the towel. What's exceptional is the fact that as, as everyone walked in, they looked around, and is, is the basin, yep, the water basin's there. Are my feet dirty? Absolutely. There's a towel, yep, see that? Are there any servants here? No, no servants. So one by one, everyone just, you know, kind of awkwardly meanders into the room, thinking somebody else, surely, is going to move that way and, and pick up the bowl. 
But nobody does except Jesus. Jesus goes over and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And what's amazing to me when I think about that picture is that Jesus doesn't exclude any of them from the washing. I'm talking about God's grace cleansing us. See, Jesus, he could have looked at Philip and been like, yeah, not you, buddy. I mean, Philip's the one that when Jesus said, okay, guys, I want you to go out. I want you to take this food. And I want you to feed the 5,000 people. They've been with me for three days. If we send them home, they'll faint on the journey. I need you to feed them. And Philip's the one that looks at Jesus and says, that's not possible. So what does Jesus say to a person that doubts his commands and doesn't believe what he said they could do? Well, he bends down. And he washes their feet. He doesn't leave Philip out. Maybe it would have made more sense to skip over James and John. Because James and John, those two brothers, are the ones that when the other disciples weren't looking, they began to start jockeying for positions, titles, and influence. They came to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left? Can we have seats of authority? In fact, one gospel writer says that they even sent their mom to ask him. And the other disciples heard about it. Like, man, you talk about a low blow. Like, come on, man. You got your mom in, in the deal? Trying to get him. What does Jesus do with people that want to leverage their relationship with him to fulfill their own plans instead of asking God what his plans are for their life? It's not hypothetical. We have it right here. We know what Jesus does with people that want to leverage Jesus for their will instead of asking God what his is. He bends down and he washes their feet. What about Peter, though? I mean, come on. Peter's the guy that in the middle of the storm, he quit trusting Jesus. He gave up. He stopped believing. I know none of you have ever done that. But in the middle of a storm, he quit believing Jesus. Beyond that, when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem... I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. Peter looked at him and said, no, Lord, you're not going to be crucified. Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Don't try to tempt me outside of the will of God. This is, this is Peter who in just a few hours from this moment at this dinner table... He's going to stand around a campfire and he's going to curse the name of Jesus and he's going to deny three times that he even knows who he is. The truth is all 24 feet that are around that table with Jesus are going to run that same night. They're going to leave him to face his accusers all by himself. But one by one, Jesus bends down and he washes their feet. That's grace. Grace cleanses us what about Judas you know he was still there and, and Jesus knew Jesus knew that this very night after I wash your feet after I serve you this meal Judas is gonna go and he's gonna talk to conspirators who are gonna pay him 30 pieces of silver to sell out Jesus Jesus knows that He's fully aware of what Judas is going to do. 
And Judas, he, he may have had evil in his heart. I'm going to tell you what. He had clean feet. Because Jesus offers grace to cleanse even the most vile sinner, the most hypocritical follower who could sit at the table and break the bread and drink from the cup knowing payday is coming in just a little while. That's grace. And it's for you and me. And we ought not to forget today. I don't know how dirty your hands are. I don't know how impure your thoughts might be. Don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. But can I just encourage you, look down for just a moment. Not too long, but look down long enough to see that your feet are wet too. The grace of God cleanses us. We have to receive it. We have, to, we have to embrace it. We have to take it for ourselves. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while, while we could just kick dirt in his face, he washed our feet. While we were not pursuing him or going after him, while we were still doubting what he said could happen, like Philip, he washed our feet. When we lost faith and quit, like Peter, he washed our feet. When we, instead of saying, Lord, I'll take up my cross and follow you, when we said, Lord, take up your cross and follow me, I have my own plan, my own agenda. Like James and John, he washed your feet. And when you betrayed him, when I betrayed him, he washed our feet. In Louisiana, there was a trial several years ago. It caught the attention of the entire state. It was back in 1982. A man had been condemned to die for murdering a family. He sat on death row his last night. His attorneys are feverishly working to try to get a stay of execution, to try to get a pardon for their client. They used just about every means within their grasp. And then as the hour approached for his execution, in fact, one half hour before he was to die in the gas chamber, the governor of Louisiana picks up the phone. He gives the man a full pardon. The lawyers are overjoyed. They, they can't believe it. They're so excited to go and to give this guy the news. I mean, you're talking in the 11th hour. They go and they tell him that the governor has pardoned him. But something interesting happens. He refused the pardon. At precisely 12 o'clock midnight, they strapped the man to the chair. And within a few moments, he was dead. The entire state was in shock. The man had a full pardon, and yet he chose to die anyway. So after that moment, over the coming days, a fierce battle begins to ensue in the courthouse. The question was this, 
Here's what we need to know. Was the man pardoned when the governor gave him the pardon? Or is he only pardoned if he receives the pardon? Did you kill that man legally or illegally? And so they hashed it out in the courtroom until finally the decision was made that the pardon cannot go into effect until it's accepted. That's the way it is for us. The pardon is there. But it's not yours until you accept it. So hear me when I say that the grace of God cleanses you. He wants to cleanse you, but you have to receive it. But there's more to it than that. Not only does His grace cleanse us, but secondly, it should compel us. You know, later in that same chapter, John 13, verse 14 and 15 says this, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The implications of that grace are huge. You know what that means? He's not just, he's not just talking about your friends. I mean, think about the people around that table. Yes, they were all disciples. Yes, they were all people that Jesus loved. Judas is still at the table. And Jesus is saying, you see the way that I washed Judas's feet? You see the way I love people that doubted my promises? You see the way I love people that tried to leverage my relationship for their own good? I washed their feet. You should do that to the people that do that to you. You see the people that quit on me like Peter when the going gets tough? I washed his feet. What about the Judas in your life? What about that person that stabbed you in the back? What about that person that disappointed you, walked out on you at the moment you needed them most? Jesus takes a posture of humility and says, I washed the feet of my Judas. Because I, your master, your Lord, your teacher, did that for you. I want you to do the same. That's the power of grace. I want you to go with me to one final passage of scripture. It's in Luke's gospel, chapter 14. Jesus gives us a picture here of what the kingdom of God is like. And I want you to let this picture settle in your own heart. Chris, I would ask if you would come back, worship team, if you would come back to just play a song as we look at this last story together. Look at it with me in verse 16. It says, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Again, this is a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is the, the master of the house who's prepared this great banquet. He sends his servants out. Come, everything's ready. Verse 18 says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. 
Still another one said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I, I just got married. I can't come. So the servant came back and he reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words, he's saying, look, it's unacceptable to me that I've prepared this incredible, incredible banquet and there aren't enough people here to appreciate it. Verse 22 says, Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. But, listen to these last four words. There is still room. We've done, we've done it. We, we went out. We invited people. Even after people rejected us, we, we invited other people. And at that moment, the servant was content with their effort. But there is still room. Those words have just kind of been reverberating in my spirit this week. Four words. But there, there is still room. There's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I want to tell you today, grace will cleanse you no matter what you've done. That's why it's amazing. You remember the first line of the song? It doesn't speak highly of you or me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. A wretch. That's you. That's me. But it's amazing because grace will cleanse us. If you're here today and you need a cleansing of God's grace, I want to tell you, He wants to wash you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to love you. He wants a better story, His story, in your life. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me all over this room. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Aaron, that's me. That, that's why I'm here. I hear God speaking to my heart today. I want to humble myself. And I want to ask Jesus to cleanse me. Wash me with His grace. Take away the sin that stands as a barrier wall between me and a right relationship with God. That's me today. I need Jesus to cleanse me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand so I know who I'm praying for? Praise God. Praise God. Hands are going up all over this house. The Holy Spirit is dealing with hearts and lives. If He's dealing with you, don't, don't ignore Him. Just respond. Don't make a list in your mind that says, I'm going to do this, this, and that. I'm going to get these things straight. I'm going to get everything right. And then, and then I'll be ready. No, you won't. You can never do enough. You can never earn it. Maybe you didn't raise your hand when I asked just a moment ago. But you're here and you say, man, I feel the Holy Spirit.
calling me to repentance, I want to ask everyone that raised their hand, and even those of us that didn't, we're going to pray a prayer of surrender to God. And I want to invite you with all sincerity in your heart to invite Jesus to cleanse you. Pray this prayer out loud after me. Say, Dear God, my heart is dirty. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash away my sin. All the guilty stains of my past failure. How desperately I need you. Lord, take my life. Let it be a part of your story. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your cleansing. And by faith, I believe I am a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. In the power of Jesus, I'm changed. I'm forgiven. And I'm free.